the second greatest financial failure in U.S. history. And surprise, surprise, our president was taking some me time in Delaware for the 67th time since taking office. The show starts now. Late last week, Silicon Valley Bank went into meltdown mode and so did all the folks that pulled their money out and especially those who wished they had. Silicon Valley Bank was the go-to bank for tech startups and its collapse was the largest failure of a U.S. bank since Washington Mutual in 2008. So yeah, things are just peachy in Biden's America and that whole build back better thing is really taking off. And speaking of taking off, that is exactly what Joe did yet again over the weekend. Rome is burning and Joe is busy with self-care. I mean, it's pretty bad when he couldn't even so much as have his Twitter tweeter send something out acknowledging the financial implosion that's en route. But no, the White House didn't care to send out anything until Sunday evening. The bank failed Friday and a real leader would have the decency to reassure the American people in real time. And the bank itself is far from blameless. And while I'll admit I'm no financial wizard or money guru, I would say a bank's head of financial risk management should probably be more concerned with, I don't know, financial risk management than spearheading woke initiatives. But that's just me. But here is our illustrious president who finally got around to addressing the American people. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills, and stay open for business. No losses will be, and I'm, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Well, if your head is still spinning in circles over all of this and you're wondering just how doomed we are, you're not alone. Because if we're being honest, we've all felt that way since January 2021. And this is just another entry in the diary. But joining me now with everything you need to know is economic expert and author of The War on Small Business, Carol Roth. All right, Carol. So we heard from the president this morning. Uh, He wants everyone to be rest assured. Everything is going to be fine. Your deposits are going to be fine. The taxpayers are going to pay for anything. We're just going to pull more money out of the sky. Free things, free things, free things. I mean, how confident should we be in what the government is doing to step in here? Well, so I was laughing a little bit as you were saying a real leader would step out early. And I'm not sure that um, anything that Joe Biden says inspires a lot of confidence. I have my fingers crossed that perhaps the actions that were taken by the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, um, absent that wonderful speech from President Biden, um, give comfort to the American people. But, you know, it's kind of hard to say. I think the biggest challenge that we have is that we have these arsonists who set your house on fire. And then they come out and they want to take credit for putting out the fire. And when it comes to the Federal Reserve and the government, that's really what has been happening with all kinds of things and Silicon Valley Bank and the contagion, the the little bit of contagion we've seen already in the financial system is just another example of them setting the house on fire and then trying to put it out and then assuring everybody that it will be fine. So um, the good news is I do think the steps 
that they took were the right steps. I think that without taking them, we would be having a very different conversation today. But in terms of being out of the woods, you still should protect yourself. So it's sort of pray for calm, but prepare for chaos as well. So I want to go back to exactly what happened and what the government's solution is. So we heard Joe say, listen, everybody's going to be secure. Your money's going to be secure. Your deposits are secure. Also, the taxpayer isn't going to bear any of the burden for this. So then how are these people going to be reimbursed? What is the, the system in place that the government implemented over the weekend and today to make all of these wonderful things happen and bring the unicorns out and everything's going to be all right? <laughs> So this particular bank failure is different than ones that we have perhaps seen in the past, banks that have made toxic loans and taken on very risky bets. The very risky bet that this bank made, which was stupid, but you know didn't seem quote unquote risky, is that they had all of this excess cash. They had all of these depositors that deposited in. They didn't have enough loans to make. So they stuck all of their cash and put it to work in treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities with 10-year durations, not thinking, oh, by the way, the Fed's going to have to raise interest rates because at some point we're going to have to pay the piper. Inflation is going to increase. And this whole thing that's been going on for the past you know, 10 or 15 years is going to come to a grinding halt. So the reality is that the Fed and the government should have just stepped in earlier. They should have made a loan against those particular securities and avoided this whole crisis to begin with. But that's not how politicians tend to react. They tend to you know, come when there's already um, an issue and there's already the panic that's been created. They're never really proactive about these things. So the details on how the quote unquote taxpayer isn't going to pay for this is a little bit murky. The reality is the taxpayer pays for everything in one way or another. Either the value of your dollar doesn't buy as much, uh, your purchasing power is diminished, it doesn't buy as much, or you have higher fees or whatnot. It sounds like perhaps for these couple of banks that FDIC, which is the group that in, you know creates this insurance for deposits, that they will be spreading fees and assessments to other banks, which means you're not going to pay for it in terms of higher taxes, but you may not get as much of a return on your money in the bank, or you may be charged other fees that are passed along from those banks. So it, you pay for it in some way um, or another. But again, some of the details are murky, and we'll see how far this spreads if the Fed has to get involved, if they have to you know, print more money out of thin air, again, it's not a direct tax on you, but it is an indirect tax on you and certainly steals your purchasing power. Yeah, I think that's what's so unsettling about all of this is that the American people are left with little confidence. We've got an administration that we're not confident in, but you knew what was going to happen, Carol. I mean, as soon as there is some kind of a catastrophe, whether it's a train derailing in East Palestine, Ohio, or a bank <laughs> failing in California, they rush to blame Donald Trump. And that's what I heard all weekend long. While Biden was in Delaware having some me time, everyone was saying, well, it's Trump deregulated the bank, so this is Trump's fault. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Do they have any leg to stand on with that argument that what Trump did during his administration to support these smaller banks, to support community banks, actually caused what we saw with this bank and the other? 
Okay, so some of you aren't going to like this answer, um, but the reality is that the Federal Reserve policy that was supposed to be emergency policy in March of 2020, which was under the, the Trump administration, really amped up a lot of the issues that we're seeing today. Now, that being said, Biden took office and had ample time to undo whether it was regulations, whether it was putting more pressure on the Fed to change course, even though they're supposedly independent. We all know that they are, really aren't um, to not, you know, create issues in terms of our energy supply, our labor supply, our housing supply, all these kinds of things. He could have changed all kinds of policy. So the idea that, you know, if he didn't like what the Trump administration had done or took issue or thought that, you know, those would lead to certain outcomes, you had plenty of time to change course. The fact that you didn't change course means that you thought that things were going in the right direction um, and you just decided to ignore it until there was a problem and not sort of take you know your own part of the blame. So things certainly got a lot more out of control within the Biden administration. And from day one, he doubled, tripled down on policies that exacerbated the situation and made it worse. Yeah, speaking of, he could have come in and if he didn't like these Trump era policies, he could have changed them. He canceled Keystone XL pipeline within hours of taking office. He unraveled our border security within days. So if he wanted to change it, he would have. But it's always the go-to, blame Donald Trump. But when I look at all of this as somebody who quite admittedly is not a financial expert and quite frankly doesn't understand a lot of what happened here because it is very in the weeds for a lot of average Americans to yeah. really understand this whole process. But I look at it and I say, you know, a lot of this just goes back to COVID to me, whether it's inflation or whether it's what these banks have done in their response to that. It's all really based in COVID and our economy shutting down and screwing everybody and inflation going through the roof with your rescue plan, rescue plan, stimulus, stimulus, unemployment, PPP loans. I mean, all of this to me goes back to COVID. How, how, Correct am I to assume that this is a lot COVID to blame? Yeah, so I think that I want to just tweak it, and I'm certain that this is what you meant, but it's not COVID. It was the government's response to COVID. Yes, yeah, we know COVID a is a cold. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so the, you know, the government's you know quote unquote emergency response that you know 15 days turned into you know however many a year and whatever many months it was. Um, the, the level and the scope and the duration, um, you know, was just historic and unprecedented. It was a huge enabler of an epic transfer of wealth from Main Street to Wall Street, which by the way, COVID, again, big accelerant, but this started back with the Great Recession financial crisis and the Fed's response to that. And then they sort of doubled down here. And I think part of the issue that I'm concerned about, if you think back, Tommy, to COVID and what they did in terms of closing down the small businesses and then having all of that business go to the big companies and then giving the big companies lower interest rates, access to capital, boosting up their stock prices, they really consolidated a lot more power and wealth in the hands of big businesses and the wealthy and well-connected. And I'm really concerned that a similar thing is happening here. You know, Silicon Valley Bank, even though the 20th largest bank in the country is still considered a regional bank. It's not the big powerhouses like the JP Morgans and the Bank of Americas and the Wells Fargo's of the world. And so the the, the worry here is in you know letting these banks 
fail or close them up is what's going to happen. Are, are they going to try to put in more regulation that makes it harder for smaller regional banks to operate? Are they going to scale back some of the regulation that says the, these big banks can't buy up the deposits? Are they going to try to make these you know few big banks have all the power and control? And then the next step from there is, well, you can't have a run on the banking system if you don't have banks. Maybe the Fed and the government needs to control everything. Maybe we need to have that central bank digital currency or that CBDC that they have been exploring, where they have complete and utter control of everything that you do and could even program that currency uh, you know, to, to support their agenda and really restrict access to that. So that consolidation of power is the biggest thing that I'm worried about coming out of this. You are exactly right. And I'm so glad that you said that because, you know, the motto is never let a crisis go to waste. We see these crises yeah. happening, whether it was COVID, where the government reacted to COVID and they saw an opportunity to take power and to galvanize their power because people were scared. And then this is very similar to that. You see people are scared. You put more power in the hands of the government, whether it be guns and, and violence. Oh, you see a problem. Let the government take your guns. Let the government take control. Everything is setting us up for the government to take more control and to take more of a, an ownership and a stake in our lives and in our money. And that is what truly, truly terrifies me because I'm sure that that's the conversation on other networks that's going to be going on right now is that we need to have some kind of a centralized system, as you said, to avoid any of this because if the government is in charge, everything will go so well, which is perfectly exemplified by the U.S. Postal Service, which has no problems. Yeah, and this is very late stage financial empire type of behavior. I mean, everybody thinks that the U.S. has been the center of the financial universe forever, but it really has only been about 80 years. It was uh, Britain before then. It was the Dutch before them. And, you know, go back to the Roman Empire. You know, there's always been these different uh, very powerful financial centers. So this is you know, kind of, in my opinion, one of those things that's setting us up for a new financial world order where the U.S. may not be at the center. And what you're seeing is all of the elite who are jockeying for control and power so that they can have their assets and their power and money protected. And guess whose expense that's going to be at? It's going to be at the expense of Middle class Americans, working class Americans, and you know, as the prediction from the World Economic Forum came out uh, for 2023, number one is you will own nothing. And unfortunately, all these things are just little pieces of that puzzle, um, which sound like a conspiracy theory, but this is a very real scenario that just happened that you guys all saw play out in real time, which again can be traced back to the behavior of the Fed and the government. Uh, in closing, I want to know what the average person should be thinking right now, yeah. what the average person should be doing. I'm not talking about the venture capitalists. I'm not talking about the people that are heavily invested in the stock market. I'm talking about your average run-of-the-mill American who has money in the bank, but they also need to buy eggs, which are incredibly expensive. They've got child care. Yeah. They've got health care. they got everything. What should the average American be bracing for right now? What steps should they take to protect themselves in this uh, this new order, the Biden regime. Yes, well, definitely a good time to call your financial institution. Make sure if you're with a bank that you have the FDIC insurance or it's NCUA for the credit unions if you're with a credit union. 
if anything needs to be moved around to make sure you have that protection in place, do that. Don't delay. Again, don't panic, but just make sure you have that protection. The same thing if you have securities, um, you know, with different brokerage firms that the, the entity that ensures that is SIPC. So you just want to have that conversation with your financial institution and understand how you may be protected. And if you're within the insurance li limits, even though Biden said everybody's deposit is going to be protected, it was um, not very explicit. So I would take that step. I would say in terms of longer term issues, and I know people are struggling right now with inflation, but practicing some personal austerity and taking what you can and trying to own tangible assets, you know, buying some physical gold. Um, if you don't own your house, you know, trying to save up for something, maybe something smaller than you had anticipated or, or in a different location that's a bit more affordable. We need people to double down on ownership right now because things are moving in the opposite direction and Marxism and communism all of those things are built around not having property rights because they know that property and ownership gives you freedom, right? So you need to be able to have assets so you can create wealth and you can protect your individual freedom for yourself, for your family, for your legacy and whatnot. Yeah, and all of this does sound like doomsday prepping, but, you know, with each new day of this administration, we all get a little closer to taking our money and putting it under the mattress and buying gold and silver and those NASA meals that you can reheat, you know, by themselves. So that's let, where we let are. Me give you, let, me, let me give you a data point. Last year, central banks around the world bought 1,136 tons of gold, was the most on record since they kept started keeping track in 1950. So if central banks are doing those kinds of things, this is not like old school prepping. This is going on on a worldwide basis with Russia, with China, with big entities. Um, so it doesn't mean it's right for you, but, you know, it's a very relevant data point. Or if we could just get some of that money back that we keep sending over to Ukraine, you know, maybe we could help make a dent in this financial crisis. Carol, thank you so much for being here explaining all of this for us. And we'll just brace ourselves. Thanks for all the good advice you've given us. It's certainly reassuring, more so than our wonderful president. My pleasure. All right. Still ahead, from financial collapse to the $150 billion illegal immigration financial liability the Democrats have saddled upon our shoulders, I've got Dan Stein from the Federation for American Immigration Reform on deck to break down our tab. American taxpayers are shelling out at least $182 billion per year on illegal immigration, and the blank checks keep coming. According to the Federation for American Immigration Reform, illegal immigration costs American taxpayers at least $182 billion a year. That means each taxpayer has a bill for roughly $1,100 on our tab. This cost is incurred by the nearly 16 million illegal immigrants on the books and the 5.4 million children of illegal immigrants we also support. And I don't want to hear the nonsense about illegals paying taxes because analysis shows they contribute around $32 billion but cost us over $150 billion more than that. So I hope you're feeling generous, Americans, because with this administration, the teat for the people who have no legal right to be here will never dry up. Join me now with more of the dollars and senselessness of it all is the Federation for American Immigration Reform President, Dan Stein. Dan, it's great to have you. I wish it was under better circumstances than talking about how much money legal immigrants are sucking off of us. Well, yeah, there are a couple of important points about this study. Not only does it include enormous costs for education, often for children brought here illegally or that they have after they get here, 
but also because the Biden administration is now trying to parole in aliens, uh, which actually gives them benefits under federal law they would not get if they just entered without inspection, the costs that are, are going to be skyrocketing even more uh, the next two years under the Biden administration's policies. So while Biden may try to come up with different schemes to hide the flow by flying people in at night through parole and things like that, the actual cost, the velocity of the increase in the cost is going to dramatically increase even beyond what we've seen for the first two years of the Biden administration. These are billions and billions and billions of dollars that could be applied to educating America's poorest children, most vulnerable, uh, the kids who really need the, the kind of decent education to compete in a superpower post-industrial information society. And yet, you know, Biden is letting in millions of people who are going to be here for years waiting for a claim that it's probably going to fail anyway. Meantime, state it's the states, the cities, they're the ones who are picking up most of the tab. And that's what's really frustrating about this, Tommy. You have the federal government, the Biden administration, basically destroying border control, entry controls, intentionally sabotaging things that were working, and then putting it on the state and local taxpayers when the state and localities are limited constitutionally in what they can do to stop the problem. Right. Well, you're right. And there have been several governors who have stepped up and tried to do something. I mean, in Arizona, they said that they could even put shipping containers to protect their border. We know that Governor Abbott in Texas has sent the National Guard on everything that he possibly can. But I think understanding how much this is costing is so important. And I'm so glad that there's a study. And I'm so glad that your organization is putting this out there for people to understand that when illegal comes over here, you know, they get their health care, as you mentioned, the education, they get food assistance, they use our city services, our law enforcement, our infrastructure, all of these things are on our tab. And that's not to even mention places like New York City who are putting illegal immigrants up in four or five star hotel accommodations and then giving them bicycles and, and everything else that they could possibly desire, room service. I mean, the tab is running up here, especially in, in those states and those places that are sanctuaries already. But we're still paying for all of this. And I wonder how long it's going to take for the average American to see the burden that this is causing. Will they ever see it, or will it be so hidden under the radar? Well, the average American understands, and people are appalled at what's going on, and they're disgusted at paying for billions of dollars for people with no right to be in the country, particularly when Americans now are struggling to make ends meet and pay for groceries. And you know, now Eric Adams wants to provide college, not only, not only luxury hotels, but college for those here on parole or people waiting for an asylum hearing. I mean, the public has made it clear, but Biden and his administration are so ideologically committed to, I guess they're trying to re-engineer the electorate. They think that a mass amnesty program, which is really what, the, what Biden is saying, either Congress passes a mass amnesty program or you'll leave the borders wide open. Well, you pass a mass amnesty program, suddenly you've got 15 million mo more voters and many of them will probably vote Democrat because they want transfer payments. They want the freebies. And so the net result is, the Democrats are playing a long game here of trying to re-engineer the electorate to achieve one-party political control. And the taxpayers are left holding the bag for this, what is frankly, this slide toward mediocrity that the country is dealing with. And, it's, and it doesn't, you know, it, it shouldn't be a partisan issue in this way. We can all agree that the rule of law is what matters, illegal is illegal, and that respect for law is the cornerstone of citizenship. Now, Democrats in particular want to give voting rights to non-citizens, illegal aliens in places like New York and Washington, D.C., and who knows where that's going to end. Yeah, and you also brought up something that I think is so important for Americans 
to really understand as well, and that is the burden that comes with these children of illegal immigrants. Because, yes, they are born on American soil. We let their illegal parents in here. They had one, two, three kids by the time they have their court date, and now those kids are now part of our system, and they're receiving benefits as well. Their illegal parents, by proxy, are receiving these benefits. So this is a whole system that we've created, and there's it's really limitless. It's really endless, because as long as people continue to have children, you still have the stress on the system. And this is a controversial point I've been speaking about for years, but when we have an open border like this, what we're essentially doing is we're importing poverty. And we don't need to import poverty at this time in our nation right now with inflation the way that it is. I mean, we've already got a run on banks. We've already got financial issues and on the brink of collapse in some ways. You know, we were in a technical recession a few months back, but now we're in a position where we're just importing more poverty and people that we're going to have to take care of. Do you think that this is fixable with a new administration? Or has this been dug so deep a grave that it's going to take generations to dig out of? It's well, it's going to take a cooperative Congress working with a sympathetic administration. And, you know, we often have these divides between the business community within the Republican Party that sees this thing as cheap labor. And what they don't, the canary in the coal mine is the fact that with millions and millions of people pouring across our borders, you still have some businesses saying, we have a labor shortage, we need to bring in more foreign labor. Now, why are they saying that? Well, two reasons. One is the immigrants who are pouring across the border don't have the skills needed in a post-industrial information society job market. The second reason is because our schools are so overburdened, overcrowded, along with things like politically correct ideology and everything else, we're not teaching our young people and preparing them for the kind of jobs that our society will be and is creating tomorrow. So you're getting it on both angles. Can you fix it? Well, you're going to need the kind of strong leadership from people who you know served in the Trump administration with whatever the next administration is, and they're going to have to have a clear majority in Congress with the willingness to overcome the Republicans who just look at this thing as cheap labor. People like Tillis, um, I don't name all the names. Yeah, Lindsey, Lindsey Graham. Graham. Lindsey Graham with his amnesty bill. I mean, we know right. the rhinos that have been pushing this through, and you're exactly right. It's because their interests like the cheap labor. So we need to hold them accountable because I never want people to forget when we had control of everything. We had Donald Trump in the White House. We had Congress. Republicans sat there for two years and did nothing. Donald Trump had to threaten to shut down the government in order to get money to build his wall so that we could protect this nation. And there were a lot of Republicans that were not on board. So simply having an R behind your name means nothing if you're not dedicated to border security. The last, the last thing I want to talk about, though, is Mexico itself, because we've already got Texas saying, hey, probably avoid Mexico if you're going to spring break. Um, I'm somebody who had a friend of mine go over to Mexico for our 30th birthday party and never came home, stabbed to death in a nice resort. We've got the recent kidnappings and murders. What can you tell folks about not only the immigration problem, but the dangers for Americans in Mexico right now? Well, we are a country that's willing to spend billions and billions of dollars to, to defend every square inch of the Ukraine. At the same time, we've allowed along our borders essentially a knife at our throats. These cartels have now corrupted the Mexican government, taken over whole swaths of uh, south of our border, and now have penetrated throughout the interior of the United States. And it's not just a matter of being unsafe in Mexico. These cartels are now operating all over our country as well. And the fact is, when you have someone like AMLO, the current president of Mexico, making outrageous lying claims that they don't produce any fentanyl and they're not responsible for these sorts of things, you know, he knows full well that by coddling up to the cartels, he's allowed them to run roughshod all over the rule of law. 
you know, probably 150 miles south of our southern border. It's very dangerous. If you get off certain beaten paths, you know, your safety can't be guaranteed. All these cartels have to do is decide you're actually an opposing gang member, no matter why you're there. And next thing you know, you're dead. And this is this is like really two miles within the United States border. How can this be tolerated? So somewhere along the way, well, Donald Trump had the right idea. He leveraged our trade relations to insist on cooperation from Mexico. As long as the Democrats continue to, to coddle Mexico, tell them this is OK and be tolerant of the cartels coming. In. We're going to you know, we, we're losing control of a swath of our country. Threaten tariffs, as Donald Trump did, and implement Remain in Mexico, because guess what? The Mexican people, they don't want the world's people, the world's migrants, setting up shop in their country either. That's why they usher them right on through to the USA. So bring back Remain in Mexico, threaten a tariff on Mexico. That's a good start. Designate these cartels as terrorist organizations, which the Democrats, for some reason, are hesitant to do. It's coddling everything. It's coddling lawlessness, whether it's within our borders, right outside of our borders, at our border. Lawlessness, 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 $180 billion a year. Oh, Dan, I appreciate you guys doing this study for waking up the American people. Let's just hope that they listen and they're ready to vote on it in 2024. Thank you, Tommy. Good to see you. All right, coming up. The run on Silicon Valley Bank pales in comparison to the massive run on our border. And you know, I have some final thoughts. Illegals are so emboldened, so shameless, so protected, coddled, and comforted by the sham administration, they are now making a literal run on our border. It's time for Final Thoughts. Well, folks, take it all in. Illegals are now quite literally bum-rushing our border in the hundreds, this massive group bombarded Mexican authorities on the other side of the border before stampeding their way to the Paso del Norte Bridge in El Paso. This footage was provided to our own Bill Malusian, one of the only reporters who actually gives a damn. While the Hollywood elites were strutting their happy asses down the champagne carpet at the Oscars, and while other so-called journalists stood by to gush and ask pointless and inconsequential questions, Fox News and Bill Malusian cared to cover the literal invasion at our southern border. You know, it's bad enough illegals are allowed to stroll in here and now go figure they are so entitled, lawless and emboldened, they won't even wait to be escorted in. They'd rather forcefully enter this country and do it without a shred of integrity or respect for this country. They will now, thanks to Joe, call home and our poor CBP officers. They've been left out to dry by Joe, and I can't even begin to fathom how utterly sickening it must be for them to watch the country they swore an oath to defend be invaded and invaded so brazenly and shamelessly. We all know the moment they use any force or measure to prevent this large-scale stampede, they will be the ones sidelined, investigated, and demonized endlessly. This is such a crock of crap. What you allow continues, and the Democrats have made it crystal clear to the rest of the world, come one, come all, and do it with zero, zippo, zilch regard for laws or the sovereignty of our nation. And you know what's worse? Half or more of this country doesn't even give a damn. You know what's going on at the border? You know how much it's costing each and every one of us over $180 billion a year or more, and some of you just don't care because you don't think it impacts you. Well, brace yourselves because it's all about to come home to roost and roost right in your backyard. You think the run on the bank was bad? Take a look at the run on our border. Two years into this administration, we've already allowed millions in. Does anyone really think these people are going to stop coming? 
I've said it before and I'll repeat it. Every person in every crap hole country around the world will be in route within the next two years and they'll pay the criminal organizations that are killing our people to do it. These people aren't coming here to earn the American dream. They're coming here to forcefully take it. We are a nation of immigrants, but we used to be a nation of laws. Under the Democrats, we went from peace through strength to the doormat for the rest of the world to walk on. Oh, but I'm sure some film no one has ever actually seen won Best Picture or something last night. So yay, bury your little heads back in the sand another day. Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.